Sermon Smith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation. My name is John Chandler. My guest today is Tim Condor. Tim is one of the founding pastors of the Emmaus Way community, which is in Durham, North Carolina, right in the shadow of Duke University. I first ran across Tim, I don't know, I guess I'd heard his name a number of times, but I read his book Free For All a few years ago, which is about the shape of preaching being a communal practice and how they practice that in the life of their community. And so I knew that would be an interesting interview, and I reached out to him, and I was glad to have him say yes and join me for the podcast. Our partner for this podcast could be you. If you're finding the Sermon Smith podcast helpful, I hope you'll consider helping to support it. It is uh, on a per-episode basis. If you go to patreon.com slash sermonsmith, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and then you can make a pledge for a dollar an episode, five dollars an episode, whatever value you find for it, and that will help me offset some of the costs of my time, the cost of the server, uh, and all of those pieces that go into putting the podcast together. So if you'd consider that, uh, that would be wonderful. Another way, of obviously, you can always help is by spreading the word and telling others about the podcast, leaving reviews on iTunes. So I hope you'll consider all those things as we just continue to expand this conversation. Once again, the guest today is Tim Condor from the latest Well, Tim, um, well, why don't you tell us about your church? Tell us about where you do the ministry that you do, the preaching that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I am the right now. I'm the co-pastor of a church called Emmaus Way in uh, downtown Durham, North Carolina. Um, we mark our age at about 11 years old, so it is a church that I founded. Um, 11 years ago, obviously. So that's home for us. I co-pastor with an amazingly gifted uh, woman, Molly Brummett Woodell, uh, who has been with us for about a year or so. But we started Emmaus Way really out of a desire. In fact, it was in many ways a reluctant church plant. We weren't entirely sure that we would have the name church associated with us. Uh, in fact, in some ways, we leaned more toward forming an intentional community that would be part of very intentional social change in Durham. And we wondered in the early days whether the um, the doing of church would be too big of a barrier to the type of kind of social, political, and kind of missional work that we wanted to do. So we were very much an ambivalent church plan at the very beginning. And uh, we're in a, a Durham now is folks around the country would recognize the type of change in Durham. It's very much kind of a, a hipsterish city at this point, even though it's mm -hmm. a tobacco driven um, small town in, in uh, North Carolina. It's kind of was the kind of the, the, in some ways, the weak sister of the triangle between Chapel Hill, where the University of North Carolina is, and, and Raleigh, but it is home to Duke University. Uh, but yeah. in even, even ironically, we moved to be in some ways to use kind of the neo-monastic language, the abandoned places of empire and uh, abandoned change to everybody wants to be here about two to three years after we got started in Durham. So, But we that was our hopes. We actually had not imagined even having a preaching ministry. We were very ambiguous about that at the very beginning. In fact, we thought uh, we might be praying the hours or some very thick kind of liturgical practice that would in some way be a bit more scripted for us. So that was our, our, our humble beginnings to our humble present, I guess. Yeah. And so where uh, you say it kind of started indirectly or by accident, was there any sort of or do you have any sort of denominational background or affiliation now that the church would be part of? No, um, we are uh, newly a part of the open network that um, Doug Pageant and a few other people that I know well have uh, have gotten going in the last couple years. Um, we one of the hallmarks of our community is uh, has developed very strongly is we're deeply involved in. Um, grassroots community organizing. Uh, it's a big part of our, our life together, our, our partnerships. Uh, so one of the, the big influences in our work um, is the Industrial Areas Foundation that was founded by Saul Alinsky in the 1930s. He's the one who organized the meatpackers in Chicago. Um, but IF has um, 
organizing communities um, um, all over the U.S. and somewhere, some places around the world. And our local group is called Durham Can, Durham uh, Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods. And when we started uh, in being involved in that, our one of our uh, other co-pastors, Dan Rhodes, was a big part of getting that started. Um, um, we um, That drew us into a different type of partnership. We were probably the only largely white uh, community is a part of Durham Can. It's it's uh, trilingual, uh, bilingual, and triracial in Durham, and so um, those were our our friends and kind of our thick community in Durham. Were were black churches, uh, Hispanic churches. It's ecumenical, so um, that the community moves beyond kind of the Christian tradition. So that's been our family. Um, our other roots were in the emerging movement. I was very involved in um, kind of. Uh, the forming of Emergent Village and the organizations before that, like the Young Leader Network and the Terra Nova Project. So in some ways we were, um, you know, living in that tradition in a local context while also forming kind of new partnerships. And the political angle of that, I don't know that we imagined in 2005, but was deeply vested by 2008. And uh, just from the way you just said 2005, <laughs> I can tell you you're, You've got some southern roots. I mean, is this where I you do. grew up? Sure. No, I didn't grow up in the Triangle. I did grow up in uh, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. I was a country kid, okay. uh, farm farm areas, and other than about eight or nine years in Boston, have been in North Carolina my whole kind of whole life. Yeah. So you talk about the church started almost with a, and it sounds like maybe an ambivalence about the role of preaching or the sermon. And then now I know that you've written this, well, not, I don't just now know. I, one of the reasons I reached out to you was because I read your book, Free For All, a few years ago. Yeah. So you, you ultimately wrote a book on preaching, but maybe a little bit different take on preaching than what might be the norm for many. And I think that'll, I think that'll frame our conversation some. So sure. maybe you could give us a little bit of the background or the thesis of what, how, how the sermon developed in the life of Emmaus Way, you know, and, and what you articulate in your book. Yeah, very quickly in our first year, maybe the end of that first year, one of the things that we were um, very committed to doing was being in conversation with lots of different churches and faith communities. Um, I actually had done an earlier book called Church in Transition with Zondervan that was, um, the subtitle of it was the journey of existing churches into the emerging culture. And so in some ways we saw ourselves as, uh, a bit of a scout, uh, in terms of, um, wanting to, I'd been in the area a long time. So I had a lot of church relationships and pastor relationships, and we wanted to be dialogical with, with other faith communities, learn from them, lead in certain ways. And, um, and that's really where we made a decision to, to be a church and to take on some of of the kind of the joys and the burdens that come with church life, things like having a budget and a weekly worship gathering, all those things. So that was the root of that decision. But somewhere in there, um, my passion has always been in the realm of dialogue. Um, even this comes out in, in Free For All later, the, the idea that so much of preaching is done in uh, kind of an, uh, in an, an authoritative mood, a, 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 a word for a community um, that is often expressed highly authoritatively um, in the realm of theology, practice, all of those things. And, and to some degree, the irony that uh, in, uh, especially in cities where you might have uh, three or four churches grouped together, uh, you might often have deeply conflicting authoritative words just right across the street happening at the same time. Sure, and, sure. and I, you know, I had been deeply impacted by uh, an over authoritarianism. I was certainly a fundy kid, Southern Baptist, uh, uh, rural um, in North Carolina. So I had that um, predisposition already to be concerned about that. But in my ministry life, I had uh, both in teaching, speaking, and even preaching had developed a great passion for dialogue. And so that was our earliest experiment. It was actually one of the most controversial things that we did our first year mm -hmm. in, in Emmaus Way was we we Im immediately started scripting a dialogue. Even the probably the first time that I, I led what would have been a sermon, I asked questions and waited for answers. And um, uh, uh, I remember like maybe the second or third week that we existed, I, um, a drummer who was a guest, uh, his, you know, four-year-old son asked a question and responded to a question. <laughs> and, and so to some degree, this 
dialogue began to develop. And, and it was controversial. We had people that came and liked, uh, in some ways, the liturgical feel of the community, its artistic creativity, even its and its missional language, but were concerned, like, why don't you preach? Uh, uh, where is the where is the space for kind of the, the preached word? And obviously, that's a presupposition of what preaching would look like. Uh, but that was an early tension for us. And so we began crafting this uh, this language of dialogue um, and began creating structures around the dialogue to make it more than just a you know a forty five minute appearance on a Sunday evening. So those were the, the by the time we got around to writing uh, free for all, in some ways we had been you know leading a dialogue for four to five years and had seen some of the transformative power uh, that, that came from that style of, of, of meeting. And so that's where Free For All, uh, its roots were even more than just um, in preaching. It was in what we had developed as a, a very thick um, community hermeneutic, uh, a sense of a community of people reading the scriptures together. So those were, those were our early experiences and they were powerful to us. And so how did, what does that look like now? Um, well, there's, there's two answers to that. One is kind of the social circumstance, kind of the, the, the process of the week that locates the dialogue. Let me start with that, just, and then sure, we'll, sure. we'll get to the kind of what happens on Sunday evening. So um, what we, we like to do is we see the dialogue portion of the worship gathering as something that is a, a, a continued conversation. In other words, it doesn't stop and it doesn't start, even though obviously it's framed in the, the gathering of, um, of when we start and end on that Sunday evening. So, um, for example, on Tuesdays, and this has been our ritual for 11 years, we have a text community that meets every week. Uh, the people in it have changed radically. The, the flavor of it changes radically. But we've always had this gathering of people who sit down and uh, discuss what we did the previous week, what we've been doing, uh, kind of putting our arms around the inertia as best we can of, of the conversations as they've unfolded. And then they read text together. They study text together. We, we, um, so in other words, our community dialogue, um, if you looked at it from the framing of a single week, begins each week with a dialogue. So these usually four to seven or eight people sit down with me. If we have a guest uh, dialogue leader in, that person usually attends that. And and we talk. We talk about text. We talk about issues. We we talk trash. We evaluate. We do all those things. Um, so that's the beginning. Um, and that's usually an hour and a half to, to two hours. Um, is, that, is this an open table or is this like a team that you invite into? It's a little of both. Uh, okay. People are very aware of its existence. We mention it very often. And and often, and I'm very quick to um, to do. Um, I'll call it footnoting since I'm a, a doctoral student as well. Uh, but we we I'm very quick to attribute what people say in that meeting to what happens in the dialogue. So in some sense, it's not their words or their thoughts or their direction isn't hidden. So on a Sunday night when I'm sitting on the stool uh, leading the dialogue, I might say, you know, Josh raised this question. And I was I was concerned about it, or I didn't understand it, or it provoked me to read this. Or uh, So in some ways, I try to be as transparent as possible, that there's a group of people that are already invested in what we're doing. Um, and, that, and that in some way um, uh, helps people know that that conversation is happening. People volunteer to be a part of it. Uh, so, uh, some people are are delighted it happens, but it wouldn't be their cup of tea. So it's in there are people that we've certainly sought out very intentionally because we thought you would be incredibly gifted in terms of helping us shape our dialogue. So that's Tuesday, and that tends to get us going. Um, yeah. And most uh, a lot of our our people that we would call staff are a part of that. But it's a it's a mixed group. It's a diverse group. Uh, kind of a short tangent. Um, when we first started this, um, and you're uh, as a Mars Hill grad, you're probably familiar with the, the the seminary landscape. This was not by design, but we had five seminarians who were interested in being a part of this or graduates. So we had myself who had a, a background at um, 
at Gordon-Conwell, but was already involved at the Seattle School, which was Marshall Graduate School. Um, Co-Pastor Dan, who's one of my closest friends, was uh, getting ready to start a a THD at Duke and was a Duke MDiv. We had a a brilliant woman who was deeply shaping this, a woman, uh, Tracy Powell, who was um, uh, a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. And then we had a young woman who was starting at Southeastern Baptist. And then we had another person who was a graduate of Dallas Seminary. So you could imagine just the huh. incredibly wide scope of that conversation. Well, yeah. And, and, and yeah. we left angry many a time. <laughs> I mean, there were, there were, you know, we were kind of crafting a, um, a, uh, a very, a dialectic word, and there were, you know, at least one person in the group who was opposed to that concept. <laughs> so it was a wild fray for about a year or two. But we were very committed to this, uh, uh, even committed to the point of getting up at seven in the seven in the morning that first year or two, so that everybody could meet. So that's our Tuesday. It's this text dialogue. I diverged on that. And does um, anybody bring anything in advance to that? Has anybody done any reading or work before that? It depends. Uh, Some weeks, it's a cold start in the realities of church life, particularly around holidays, summers. We may show up and be in the lectionary, and maybe people have read the lectionary text. Um, Maybe not. Um, In other times, we're in the middle of a concept. There are people that are are thinking about what we're doing, um, that they would have known the text in advance, perhaps read multiple versions, uh, you know, gone to text week or, or some sort of lectionary um, resource. So it ranges from highly prepared to, you know, what the heck are we doing this week? Um, and we are probably equal between both of those. Um, the other part of our week relates to that question, though, that you asked, is for 11 years, we've also had a Thursday night pub group. Uh, this has been a, another one of our rituals, um, and it's a group of people. It's uh, fluid in every way, uh, uh, pun intended. Um, people come and go. It's an entry place for our community. A lot of people kind of found us through pub group. Um, it, it meets uh, you know locally and publicly. Uh, we've had people join us who were just sitting at the next table and wanted to be a part of it. Um, but that conversation is um, we we kind of title it you know theology, politics, life, and whatever. Um, but often that pub conversation is highly aligned to what we're speaking about in our dialogues or what we're thinking about speaking about or following up to something that we just feel like we need to talk more about, even though the Sunday worship gathering has moved in a different direction. And so when you say kind of coming prepared on Tuesday, um, many of our Tuesday uh, text people through the years have been part of our pub group. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have read everything from like right now we're reading – um, short stories, and we're going back and forth between, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, Flannery O'Connor and uh, a gifted uh, writer of color, uh, ZZ Packer, and uh, and looking at her stories of faith and in, in social context. So we've done those type of things, but we've done, um, you know, months of reading on uh, apocalyptic theology, starting with. Uh, uh, John Howard Yoder and moving through a whole range of theologians. We just finished um, a long sense of reading on uh, on race, beginning with Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates, and then we've been reading wow. uh, liberation theologians and indigenous theology uh, and indiz- indigenous theologians. We have people who are faculty members who sometimes pop in and recommend readings that are in their research realm. So that conversation is highly connected to the worship gathering and the text group. It informs, it provokes, it nuances. And so often, you know, a Tuesday morning person might have, you know, been reading liberation theology for eight months as a part of of that. So those two rituals are interesting because what happens is for us, the dialogue has, is soaked in community. Uh, three hours at pub group, a couple hours at text group. If if I if I have done no work whatsoever, I've already spent usually five hours in community before mm-hmm. I'm beginning to work on a dialogue that's going to be a community conversation. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, so that's kind of our our ritual. One other thing I would say: uh, this is working its way towards Sundays. 
But the other thing that we do is we we try to be multivalent in 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 our sense of conversation. And what I mean by that is that, that some of the things we talk about uh, we understand might be more. Uh, more effectively discussed in something outside of words and outside of even a dialogue that's led by a person. So our conception of the Sunday liturgy is that the the music and any other art that we do is part of the conversation. And it's, it's, it's planned to be not only informative, but in provocative. It's, in other words, it's not just setting up the conversation, as happens a lot of times when music is done very experientially, creating the right mood or the, the right feeling. For us, it's entirely different. Uh, the, the music is designed to take us into spaces that, um, that we, um, we might be unable to get to in our spoken words. Um, we also do have kind of a musical tradition before the dialogue begins that um, where we do what we call songs of preparation. And often those songs of preparation move sometimes even violently in opposite directions. Uh, and in some ways, they may frame the ditches of a conversation. If you pushed it hard in this direction, you might end up here. And if you pushed it hard in the opposite direction, you might end up there. And so to some degree, when I begin to lead the dialogue each week, um, we, we're already dialoguing, whether it's text group, uh, um, um, uh, pub group, or even just the experience of the liturgy that night. So that's yeah. a little bit of kind of the, 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 the community movement toward the dialogue. Yeah. Okay. So then once you have that, I mean, you've got all of that, you've got five hours of community and you're planning other pieces. What is, and I know that you have multiple voices who to use the quote unquote preach, but to, to, you know, facilitate this dialogue every week. So, but we'll just, you know, focus yeah. on you when you do it. Sure. What is, what does your preparation then look like beyond those five hours? I, I yeah. mean, I, like, I don't know what percentage when you say dialogue, I don't know if this means you still have almost a outlined structure you're working through with parts where you're inviting it, or if your whole role is really to guide a discussion. So talk a little bit more about that. You know, we've actually done all of the above depending on what we're speaking on. And yeah. uh, for example, uh, when we're in a lectionary series where, um, you know, there's so many resources and we're really emphasizing to the whole congregation that we're reading a text together. And this is actually one of the um, more common prep methods for me is that um, especially the first five, six, seven years, I would spend the majority of my week reading uh, after after kind of these conversations and the conversations don't end there you know there may be emails that fly the rest of the week out of either pub group or text group that that keep me in conversation about the text but in when I'm alone preparing and I'm not uh, overtly listening to other voices most of my preparation would have been um, reading and it's interesting you know um, I think you have a, a mega church background and I'm kind of classically downwardly mobile, but I began in a <laughs> megachurch and then moved to a fairly significantly sized, medium-sized anyway, kind of college town church. And both of those, the first church had a radio broadcast, so I didn't preach a whole lot, but when you preached, it had to be down to 30 minutes, right? Not yeah, 30 minutes yeah. and 10 seconds, had to be 30 minutes. And in our college town church, it was just a humble space that was overcrowded, did multiple services. It was literally a parking disaster if you mm -hmm. went over by five minutes. Even though it was, it was a casual community, if you went long, there were people circling or going home because there was no place for them to park. Um, and so my background was always a great deal of time, uh, not just writing a sermon, but then, um, you know, speaking it um, two, three, four times. You know, there have been many a day when I think we were more like 35 minutes in, in this kind of you know, college church environment. And, you know, I would wake up on Sunday morning and know I was at 38. And I, you know, I needed to get to 34 and a half and be pretty comfortable about what that 34 and a half minutes was going to be. So I've very much been in that environment where it's highly scripted. Um, but what for us, what was really interesting was I, when I was doing that, 
you spent a lot of the time, if you pie charted your efforts, the, you know, the writing and rewriting, which is preparation and is really significant. I'm not, I'm not demeaning that at all. I think sure. it's deeply valuable, but, um, but in the Emmaus way context, the writing part could be five minutes. It could be scratching out, you know, four headings on a piece of paper or a page of notes. Um, and whereas the preparation that week was, you know, 10 hours of reading of, because I got into something in text group, I got into something, uh, that I wasn't aware of. And this was deeply transformative to me, uh, to some degree. And I, I you know, this is a, a value judgment that, that I don't intend to impose on others, but was one that I experienced is that my, um, my seminary preparation was excessively dated uh, by the, the 90s to early 2000s. I mean, it was a pretty reformed, highly academic, um, evangelical education. And this was before, you know, we've translated or, or read widely things like Bourdieu and Foucault. So intellectually, it's, you know, it misses a couple of conversations. Uh, the um, kind of what we would use as lazily, the more postmodern, post Christian context is what I worked in, but we weren't deeply naming it as such in the 80s. And so for me, um, my experience in pub group with um, um, the, the people that were in it um, was an incredibly re-education, the same experience I had in, in Emergent Village and, you know, being around many of my friends in that community is I was constantly relearning, rethinking, re-experiencing, re-implementing, re-embodying theology. And so that has driven tons of reading um, in the um, in the early years of Emmaus Way. So that's how I prepared often as I was, I was, I had read, I was ready to comment, but many times I may not comment on something that I read because someone in the community didn't raise a question. And I would put a lot of burden on um, the community um, in some ways guiding some of the possibilities of the dialogue. And I tried to be the type of person who was responsive to people's um, people's questions, their thoughts, their ideas, but not just kind of vacuously uh, responsive to some degree. It's kind of to use Henry Nouwen's language, you know, uh, um, this is uh, the idea of hospitality is not just receptivity, but it's honesty. You have to be a real presence. And so I, in, you know, engage their dialogue as a real presence, someone with thoughts and experiences and hopes and all of those things. So that's what preparation looked like for many years was just a week of reading and a few notes and yeah. And, but in the last couple of years, and, and I'm, I'm kind of what I would say now in kind of PhD preparation mode, which means I, you know, our whole staff is, is bivocational. And that was our vision. I was not bivocational the first year or two in Emmaus way, but I did start a, a, a PhD, um, about five years ago. And so I'm in the middle of writing a dissertation, uh, just finished another book, all of those things. So to some degree, what I do now is I locate my preparation on Sundays. So I do the text group, I do pub group, and I try very hard not to spend other times in the week. I don't know that that's ideal, but then I, I wake up on Sunday mornings, um, you know, eight in the morning, pot of coffee, and I... Uh, and we should, I, I, I should state here, you meet Sunday evenings. We should address... Yeah, Sunday evenings, <laughs> right. We meet at five o'clock on Sunday. This is like 8 a.m. for a 9 a.m. service, yeah. No, 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 no. And then I spend the day kind of taking... And of course, what happens is a lot of the reading that we do is highly related to... And the, 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 the work we do is highly related to the research I do and the research other people do in our congregation. So I'm familiar with... I have a deep familiarity with... Often the the, um, the not 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 just in terms of the biblical text, but kind of the cultural social text around that. But I spend the morning, you know, um, four to six hours um, um, thinking, reading a few extra things. Uh, you know, scratching out some notes. Uh, the game I play with myself is I'm a runner. I, I try to get to the gym to, to get an hour run in before making it to, to Emmaus Way at five o'clock. So that's, so now I'm very focused on a highly Sundayocentric method. I don't know that that's ideal, but it works really well as a, a bivocational pastor. And what is it? So when all that is said and done, 
what is it that you take into the pulpit? Like, what's it look like? Um, there's it, there's a range. Um, some weeks it's a lot of weeks. It's basically um, my iPad with a um, a uh, a single page of notes, okay. um, and maybe um, maybe quotes and things like that that spill into multiple pages. Um, I'm a big believer in the iPad uh, uh, because uh, you know I'm old enough that uh, I used to remember doing weddings. You know, and you would travel to do a wedding, and there'd be a substantive change on Friday night uh, before Saturday, which meant you know. Uh, scribbled writing on a, on a piece of paper in the margins. And I love that the iPad gives me the freedom to, to change my text, you know, right up to the moment where I, where I sit in the middle of the community. Um, so I sit there with my iPad, which has all of the other dialogues. Um, every article I've read, there's really like, you might ask a question in the middle of this and I might think, you know what, that reminds me of, uh, an article by Stanley Hauerwas on this, which I will be looking up on my iPad while you're making your comment, uh, to, to for me to say, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas said, you know, um, uh, if, if, um, the scriptures or a pastor doesn't help you think about your pots, pans, and generals, uh, then then it, it's not very, very resonant with your life. You know, I might have pulled that quote out of something while you were talking. So it's that's what I'm sitting there with an iPad with, you know, previous dialogues sitting there, notes, articles, all of those things. Um, there are times when we do want to write things out, though, that are we want to say in a certain way, we want to raise in a certain way, often when I'm asking people to react to something. So it's not uncommon as well for me to write, um, uh, sometimes especially if it's experiential, an imaginary circumstance, an imaginary conversation, um, a uh, deconstructive thing or something ironic. I might write a, a three-page, you know, small, you know, story to have people listen to. So it's not that I'm opposed to coming in there, but most weeks I'm sitting there with my iPad and a page of notes. And do you, so would you say that you come in on Sunday, do you have out of all of the prior dialogue, do you have some kind of thesis that you are guiding the sermon towards, or is it more open-handed just to continue the dialogue that's already happened and see where that goes? Yeah, often, especially when we're in some sort of kind of topical series, there there is an overarching narrative that is washing across six or seven or eight dialogues, right? And so you're, and often when I'm I'm beginning, I uh, um, this is certainly not uh, if you're a, a mega church uh, planter, this is certainly the worst thing possible to do. Uh, in other words, no riveting open opening illustration from from me is often I'll sit back and say, hey, we're in the middle of a conversation on and take about three or four minutes to make people comfortable about what that conversation is so mm -hmm. that they feel like they're that it's OK that they missed two out of the last four weeks. Um, we're still a fairly young congregation, 20s and 30s. So, you know, full hardcore attendance is about two out of four weeks for us. For yeah. most people. So framing that kind of conversation and then also framing a, a question, a driving question. Like, for example, um, we um, a lot of my research is in the area of identity and, and social movements. And so we've done a variety of of dialogues on our identity and how it shapes our practices. So so I'm, you know, I'm. I'm engaging that question of, hey, we're, 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 we're talking about our identity. And the last several weeks, we've wrestled with these two or three different identity markers and the practices that go along with them. And tonight, we're looking at um, um, the, um, the contention of politic and uh, uh, dialoguing with people who may be against or passively for something that we're for. And, and that's a part of our identity. And we're looking at a text that's on this. And so so there is uh, one of the things that um, this was how I answered the question even 11 years ago when people said, you're not preaching. You know, you're you're giving up in some ways your authority or power. And I was very quick to say, I think one of our great downfalls is I'll probably have too much authority and too much power, regardless of how much I try to give away, because I'm deeply involved in choosing text choosing series, uh, being in the dialogue with other people as we prepare. And so my voice is, is not lost. 
Uh, and, and in fact, it should be probably decentered even more than it is from time to time. Yeah. Oh man, I'm I, so like we're totally off my normal scru- structure, but I'm just <laughs> feel, like crazy. feel free. So uh, uh, this will be a simpler one, but you just sure. you alluded to this a little bit, but I guess we didn't cover this that much early on regarding Emmaus Way, which is what would you say is the overall demographic of the church? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a very good question. We're a follow um, up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for one of our huge barriers is we're we're ridiculously overeducated. Uh, I mean, we're we're half a mile from Duke University. Uh, there have been times. This is not the case anymore. Um, um, there there have been times when we would have fifteen seminarians or you know. Um, THD, PhD type of people in the room. Uh, we still have that flavor now. A couple of faculty members at Duke and UNC, and um, a a, um, a staff where you know I'm uh, nearing the end of a PhD. Uh, Molly, our co-pastor, will uh, most likely start a doctoral program next year. So there's a there's an educated feel to the community. It's also you know it if you fell down in our room. Uh, you would probably not hit a business person or a lawyer. There's one lawyer to hit. There's a few entrepreneurs, <laughs> but you would hit a social worker. I mean, there's you know, there's you can't fall in any direction and yeah. not hit a hit a social worker or a teacher, so, right? Or yeah, something. right. School teachers, um, uh, people that are uh, activists in organizations around the state. Uh, so there are a lot of people in in helping communities. We're way too white for our own likings. I mean, we're we're not entirely white, but we're you know we're probably at least eighty to eighty five percent white. Um, we're youngish, though we've aged some. Um, we 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 were a lot younger than we thought we would be when we started. We were primarily twenties, but now we're you know late twenties, thirties. Um, uh, so we're still pretty young. People are coming back on Sunday night from a weekend away. Um, uh, a wedding, uh, something fun that they've done, or just recovering from Saturday night. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're young and yeah. um, we are in one of the diversities that we focused on uh, at the very beginning. Uh, and this, this took um, some hard work is we started with a lot of either evangelicals or post evangelicals. Um, but we are pretty theolo- but we wanted to be theologically diverse. We thought it was the richest way to do dialogue. Hence the five seminarians yeah, and the, yeah. the very you know from Harvard to Dallas, right? Um, but we are we are theologically diverse. We still have some evangelicals, though less than before. Uh, you know, you're a church planner. One of the things you realize is that um, that in in cities that are growing and in highly kind of excited church planning context. We were the first, I think, kind of church plant slash kind of new culture thing in Durham. We're the oldest of that. But all yeah. of the church planting for that, that we're aware of in Durham has been on our right. Uh, so that that certainly defines who we are as a community now. One of the things that I, in fact, always dreamed of was having a dialogue with people that strayed beyond kind of tight Christian norms. And as I look in the room, and there's anywhere from 40 to 70 people in the room, depending on the, the time of the year or time of the semester for us, um, there will be at least four to, to eight or nine people who are not theists. Um, they're often, you know, partnered or, or married to somebody in the community. We're a, a really attractive church. If you have, if you're in a relationship with somebody who is, um, who is a Christian, uh, theist committed, uh, uh, but you're not, um, you're, you might end up in a mass way. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we have a, a, a bit wider theological span that we did. We've also, uh, been, um, We've had a lot of mainliners and people from from either Catholic or Anglican backgrounds join us. So that's the other thing that's going on is you can't name a tradition that's the dominant tradition in the room or appeal to a tradition as a given. And, and I mean, so that kind of leads into one of my I mean, I have seven, seven follow ups out of that. But that leads sure. to one of my you know other questions, which is. You know, you talk about people in the room who would not even be theists, let alone Christian. And, 
you know, we have, I mean, I'm, I can think of one particular person who's part of our church who, um, joining our liturgy, I don't know, six months ago, she'd never been part of a church in her life. And so, mm-hmm. uh, every time I'm working on a sermon, like I'm trying to make sure I'm crafting and I was trying to do it before, but it's even more helpful when you can put a face mm-hmm. to it, but I'm trying to make sure I'm crafting language that, uh, she's going to be able to identify with as well as somebody who's been, you know, part of a Southern Baptist down in Texas. Right. I mean, somebody right. who's been part of a really conservative Southern Baptist since they were two or two right. days old. Um, what is, what does it look like for you? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm both surprised and not surprised to hear that somebody who's a theist or not a theist feels comfortable, but with so many people speaking into it, how do you keep the language at an accessible level within that? Well, that's a big, big part of, of my job is seeing the, 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 the sermon, if you will, as a space of hospitality, right? right. I mean, there, there have been times, um, um, like, for example, um, our pub group um, five years ago was dominated by seven or eight people who are there every week, uh, including myself, and uh, who all started doctoral programs the next year, <laughs> uh, Vanderbilt, Rice, Duke, um, uh, University of North Carolina for me, um, you know, and and all of them uh, theological or theological influenced um, uh, doctoral programs, right? And so many a time I have to say, you know what, not not everybody knows that word. I mean, as a doctoral, late life, you know, mid-50s doctoral student, you know, my wife or kids will challenge me all the time. They'll say, <laughs> that is not a word. You know, the first time they heard me say positionality, they would say, that is right, right, right. clearly not a word. And I would say, it's so absolutely a word. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it's, I spent a year, you know, proving that words were words. Uh, even now, um, my my uh, son, who's a, a uh a, uh, a senior here at UNC and my wife joke, they keep count of the number of times I use the word persons, which they still are convinced is, is not good English. <laughs> so That's part of people, <laughs> instead of people, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, okay. Exactly. And, um, and so, so part of my job is making sure that the language is accessible, but you raise another point is theological accessibility. But what's interesting, and sometimes I can, somebody will make a comment and I will turn and point to um, somebody and say, you know, cue Luke Fishbeck. And Luke is, uh, is a, a entrepreneur in our community, uh, does not identify as a theist. Uh, I was raising a point uh, one week about the Christian tradition. And, and I've preached on this a lot of times before in other communities of, you know, are we really the good guys? You know, and I can turn to Luke and he'll say, you know, no, we're not the good guys. We being uh, uh, Christians and the church and the Christian tradition, or we're not de facto good guys. We have often been on the other side of the conversation. And for me, that's an incredibly welcome comment. I mean, I was formed in in the the 60s in um, Southern Baptist desegregation wars. One of the first things I learned as a 10 to 12 year old was, hey, the church can be on the wrong side any way you want to cry, uh, you want to slice and dice a sense of moral ethics. We can be the bad guys. Um, And I saw that. Uh, So to some degree, uh, we have this repartee with each other where you almost know what somebody's going to say, right? And if I move way too far into uh, either an ecumenical or uh, a, uh, a, a radical, I'm a, I'm a cultural studies student, so uh, post-capitalism and uh, 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 for, kind of nouveau forms of kind of Marxist thought are very, very common in our dialogue. I can turn to somebody very quickly who I know is going to offer a more orthodox perspective on this and we welcome it <laughs> so to some degree we we're we're sensitive but the community itself continues to assert their voices to make sure that traditions are not run over and and right now you know a lot of that assertiveness comes on the more conservative side of our community mm-hmm. because again we are positioned to be far more radical in our theology and politic based on who comes. And when you do a dialogue, we say it every week, every person here matters so much because the dialogue is different because of your presence. And the way we're doing this, uh, even if you say nothing, um, we are different because you're sitting in the room. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would imagine that can actually be, I would imagine it requires a lot of work to even help the conservative voices feel safe. Yeah, absolutely. Typically yeah. those who have quote unquote progressed out of, you know, maybe coming from a more conservative background actually have quite a bit of baggage toward it and might not have as hospitality toward it as they do towards the left. Is that, does that, is that fair to say? Does that happen? Yeah, absolutely. That's been one of our greatest struggles over the last two or three years. Because we're young, we're in a college community, um, our growth plan, I mean, we again, this is, if you're, a, you know, a, a growth style church planner, delete this podcast. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the um, we jokingly say the way we grow by one is we have 26 new people who come in the fall because 25 are going to leave in the uh, in the spring. That's not entirely the case anymore, but we have a lot of people who are finishing programs, changing jobs, uh, um, you know, getting into an advanced degree and moving somewhere. So we have people coming and going. We're not the same community from year to year. We saw that from year one to year two. We were very, very countercultural uh, year one and not so much year two based on who left. And so the, 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 the kind of the, the central social core of our community is not always the same from year to year. But over the last couple years, helping evangelical and more conservative and more traditional voices find safety in our community has been, a, has been hard labor. And one of the challenges, two challenges, that one is that, that, you know, people do bring baggage and I can blow it each week by raising a question that just in some way seems to inspire everyone to share their baggage, which can be challenging to someone who says, that's not my baggage. It's something I find precious. Um, but, you know, the other side of the challenge is evangelical privilege, is the idea that, you know, many, many conservatives, given that evangelical Christianity has had such a wide swath of impact, and I'm including everything sure. in this, that from Pentecostalism to prosperity gospel to fundamentalism to neo-evangelicalism to, you know, uh, you and I would be familiar, almost anything that Dwight Friesen, our old friend from Mars Hill, would name as evangelical. Yeah. Um, but one of the challenges in our culture is that many people from those backgrounds, even though they're deeply tolerant of other voices, still have a paradigm that when people mature or will become true or highly invested believers, they'll become evangelical or more evangelical. So to some degree, I have to welcome those more conservative voices while also sifting through uh, evangelical privilege the same way we have to sift through uh, through white privilege and, and other forms of privilege in our conversation. Yeah. Hmm. All right. One more, one more big uh, question. Then I'll t just tackle a couple of real practical questions with you. Sure. But, you know, you talk about the origins of this came out, and this is a purely selfish question because I was having a conversation with, about a uh, sermon with my, uh, one of my other pastors at our church even yesterday. So, okay. um, so we were talking about like the role of the sermon as, you know, pastor, you know, sharing insight among friends versus, you know, some sense of authority or calling in the context of the sermon and all that. Um, you know, and so you talk about how there was, there was, uh, I don't know that you use this language and I'm probably oversimplifying, but some suspicion of the authority of the single voice, you know, in the, it, on the stage or the center of the room. And uh, right. so it's bringing in, so where would you say, I, I would guess you wouldn't say there should be no th authority at all in the role of the sermon or no, uh, I don't know what word I want to use here, gravitas, something like that. But like, would you say that there's some sense of authority that's still connected to the sermon? And if so, where does it reside? Yeah, there's definitely still some authority there because, you know, people process things. Um, I mean, you can tell when they're they're frustrated or upset or disturbed in a good way. I've never thought of this, right? right. Um, uh, they're still in, in that emotional reaction, positive, negative, curious, frustrated, any of those things. Uh, they're still resonating with the dialogue as, as if it has authority. So, you know, even if I were to maybe to be so naive and in uh, one of the things that we say here in the kind of narrative research I do is that there's no such thing as an innocent story, you know. And so if I were to be so naive to say that um, we had somehow figured out a way to uh, divest the dialogue of authority, that it would be entirely wrong in its effect, meaning how people respond to 
to our dialogues. So um, certainly I'm not saying that. But and this is this kind of relates to the whole idea of of when Dan and I wrote Dan Rhodes, who is our our co-pastor for eight or nine years, wrote Free for All, is we did try to um, locate authority in new spaces. One of those new spaces is the community, a community of people who are reading text together, and that is certainly present when people are 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 enthusiastic or frustrated about what they might deem as things said authoritatively at a, at a mass way, they're often critiquing the community voice rather than my voice or Molly's or, or someone else's. They're, they, are, they are saying, we are saying this and I'm uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have uh, um, a strong sense of, kind of pneumatology. We believe in the presence of God's spirit in this world and understand that that spirit inspires, provokes, conspires, does all of these things that, that happens in our midst. And so uh, we have no, no awkwardness whatsoever of saying that we're engaging um, the, um, the, the presence of, of God, the presence of Jesus in, uh, in text and table every week. Um, and and are not awkward about saying that. So uh, so yeah, those are that's a, that's a, a quick pass. Does that get at kind of what you were asking about? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, because I, I didn't read what you were saying as we dismiss any sense of authority. So I wanted to circle back to that because you still are really trying to fulfill what would be the classical, I would say, role of the sermon. But you're, I would say, you're trying to shift how the authority of that sermon is present. Is that safe and de- to say? Yeah, and decentering myself. I mean, I say this right. all the time in a mass way. You are stuck with the stories of a straight white male, um, yeah. unless you tell your stories. And one of the things that that I have, you know, through years of preaching, and I'm, I've been in ministry over thirty years now, I, I was deeply aware in the '90s that because um, I had great friends would come up and say, you know what, as a woman, you would not have read that text that way. And I, and I would sit back and say, wow, I preach that as a, a fairly authoritative reading uh, from a set of experiences that are certainly not universal, right? And so um, we, so for us, one of the things that we're aware of is that um, it, the more that I illustrate and I narrate and I invoke based on my experiences, the more I'm limiting the con- conversation of possibilities around a biblical text. And so, so to some degree, it's, it, you know, I fail at this, certainly, I'm trying to be deeply aware of my own, my own presence in the community. So many a time we'll get to the, and I should say this, the dialogue happens in lots of different places in our, in our, our Sunday night dialogue, meaning we might talk in a reactive mode early on. We might talk in an interpretive mode. Um, and many, many times we talk in a praxis mode. Like we have, you know, we we're there's 20 minutes left and the question essentially boils down to what do we do about this? This might be the place where, uh, in my, my more traditional preaching style, I might've preached 10 minutes of application. But I love giving that to our community and saying, what would we do about this? Um, yeah. and, and, and what happens there is the, the we and what we would do certainly does not uh, stay within the realms of what a white straight male from my experiences would think is possible. Yeah, sure. All right. I'll, I'll get real practical here, real tangible. Okay, yeah, fire away. Sure. <laughs> you talk about... Um, you talk about sitting up there with your iPad and referring back to com- prior conversations or a Hauerwas article. Uh, so talk a little bit just about how do you keep all that stuff? I, I, I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. I love to talk about apps and all that stuff. So, sure. so what's, how do you store and keep all this stuff at hand so you can recall it and access it? Do you have favorite apps that you use or do you have some kind of system for all that? You know, for me, I, I'm a, a geek in that I love these things. I'm, I'm not a tech. I, I'm almost a Luddite in my ability to, uh, to uh, you know, um, use technology. Yesterday, uh, one of, the, one of the, our lead artists uh, just passed uh, his boards. He's a, a, a fairly new therapist, and he passed his boards. And 
everybody on our staff responded to his um, his his own passing with clever bit emojis, you know, you know, uh, including him. And, you know, after five minutes and I pulled my car over, I'm driving back from a research interview in Charlotte and I pulled my car over and said, I'd like to have a picture of me celebrating with Mark over this, you know, of which, you know, Ben, who's our, our staff facilitator would say, Tim, they're called bit emojis and ask, ask your freshman daughter, uh, to figure that out. So I go home and I make one and my, my wife makes one and my kids and I, uh, both collegians have been having bit emoji wars all morning. So that's my technology sense. I'm around people who know what to do. And occasionally they'll tell me, um, but, but what I, I do very, but as a doctoral student who has data on their laptop and on their iPad, um, I have to be deeply aware of where things are. I think that's probably my 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 gift or my anal retentiveness is I'm really aware of what's on my iPad. Yeah. Um, and so for reading and PDFs, I use Goodreader, yeah. um, which is one of many good apps on that. And and I'm very careful to file and multi-file things. So let's say that a, a text article, we didn't read an article in our, our pub group. Uh, um, I, I will copy that article and put it in not just our pub group file, but a sermon file, as well as a, a research file of a seminar that I took uh, where there's a collection of articles. So what I am good at as is getting to what I've got in a hurry. And so yeah. what I have on my iPad uh, which I think is awesome, as I have every article, not the, obviously the books, but some books, but every article that I've read as a part of my doctoral program. And I can get my hands on that. Uh, you're, you're talking about language and indigenous experiences. And I might think, oh, yeah, Keith Faso's book, Wisdom Sits in High Places. And I know that I read that in two seminars, Black Church Studies over at Duke and an anthropology seminar at Carolina. So I could get to that article in a hurry. Um, And so that's what I'm kind of armed with is, um, you know, uh, articles that are not just a long list, but are filed in files that I can access in a hurry. I also do keep on on pages on my iPad um, all of the, um, usually the last... um, 10 weeks of sermon dialogues. Now I do go file into Dropbox the rest of them because I think the other part of that is you want to have stuff you can find easily on your your laptop, iPad or whatever you've got, but if you have too much, you can't sift through it enough. And so that's in my Emmaus way kind of preaching file, it's those last 10 dialogues. And I'm really quick to, I'll remember, yeah, three weeks ago, I quoted this. There are people in the room who hadn't heard that quote. It should probably be read again, right? So that's what, you know, and I can get to it in a hurry and because we're talking and, and, and sometimes as a part of the the dialogue, I might say, Hey, let's pause for a minute. And, um, cause I think, you know, community voices are really important in terms of like, uh, not only passing the peace and our kind of rowdy Eucharist, I, I'll stop sometimes and say, Hey, why don't you talk to some people about that? Why don't you? And so there's places where it's easy for me to find something. Um, uh, so I'm not always speaking so that I, I do have a chance to think for a moment. Where did I, where, where did that come from? Perfect. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for answering that. Um, I wish I was a geek like you. I, if you have got some great apps, please let me know that I should, that I should know about. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, you're kind of talking about it, but I, that's like the, to me, that's like the golden, um, the golden egg. I, I don't, I'm, I've got a metaphor that's not coming to me here. Uh, I'm 45. I lost you for a second. Oh yeah. I lost one sentence from you. Yeah. I just said, I'm struggling to find the right metaphor here, but, uh, yeah, to me, that's like the golden egg, which is being able to so quickly file and access that stuff, especially on an iPad, you know, cause there's great programs that can hold all this stuff, but they're still not like the perfect way. I don't think to be able to quickly find and search all that on an iPad. Sure. Sure. I'm impressed. Well, the other geeky thing is, uh, you know, they say that your eyesight begins to uh, diminish a little bit in your early 40s. And in our first, you know, we were we started in Mayas Way, I was 43, and we had a loft above a cafe that could get pretty dark 
uh, and especially if a, a Sunday afternoon thunderstorm was rolling in. And I remember maybe our first you know month or two, my sitting down with with written notes. I didn't own an iPad at the time, and looking down and going, "Oh my goodness, I can't <laughs> read this." And I've had some funny wedding experiences with that as well. And so we, the, the people also know that backlit screen is a pretty. A, a pretty helpful thing to a, a 55 year old pastor. Yeah, definitely. And you can make the text really big. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, well, uh, Tim, just, you know, I guess one other question I'd toss out there, which is, you know, other, uh, other books or resources that have been helpful for thinking about how you craft, you know, this, this particular style of sermon in the life of your community? Are there others you would throw out there for people who might want to be thinking about or digesting this more? Yeah, you know, I'll throw out one theological text that um, I, I use a little bit with fear and trepidation now because of the, the horrific findings of uh, of kind of how John Howard Yoder carried on his life. Uh, and yeah. so no recommendation whatsoever in terms of his relationships uh, in his own church context. But um, but Dan Rhodes, who I wrote Free For All with and, you know, great friend, um, when he first showed up at Emmaus Way, which is about four to five week months into our, our life, uh, was, you know, beginning... Uh, career where he, he, he wrote a beautiful dissertation on apocalyptic theology by reading John Howard Yoder and, uh, and, and Karl Marx. And um, one of the things that we realized that, that I was doing intuitively some things that had some long theological traditions to us. So Dan walked up to me and said, um, hey, you guys are free church sacramentalists. There's not many of those around. And we would have not used that terminology. We will now, but we wouldn't have then. And, um, and so, um, one of the first things that I, that I did is we sat down and read, uh, body politics, uh, by, by Yoder <laughs> and, yeah. uh, kind of the five practices of a watching world is I think the, the subtitle of that. And many of those practices we were doing, I mean, we were literally committed to those practices without a deep sense of the tradition behind them. And his whole idea of the fullness of Christ in this, you know, the, the practice of kind of the open meeting, the, the sense of everybody has been gifted as a part of the community and taking seriously their giftedness was highly inspirational um, to our understanding of what our dialogue was. Um, our, our sense of Eucharist, which is a very social uh, Eucharist, uh, was deeply formed by one of the other chapters on that book and, and also our understanding of... Um, I just slipped my brain. I'm talking about the fullness of Christ, but the the, the practice of binding and loosing uh, oh, yeah. that he talks about there in terms of of living. Uh, McClendon uh, would call Jim McClendon would call this the the politics of forgiveness. Those those practices were deeply formative to our dialogue. Uh, so, to many ways, and in fact, there was a time when almost everybody in our community had read that small, you know, ninety page book. And so to some degree that those theological texts have been very helpful to us. Um, so that's about the thickest tiny book I've read. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's one of those books that I wouldn't call it the, the best written book in terms of sometimes Yoder has a, 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 a tendency to assume that you know what he's talking about. And if you're coming from a different tradition, you have to, I mean, we've had some really smart people read one of his 12 page chapters and say, I don't get it and have to read it three or four times. Uh, so I think you're exactly right. But that that has been very, very significant in our practices. Yeah. Well, Tim, for somebody who wants to keep up with with you or with Emmaus Way, what are some websites, Twitter accounts, whatever there might be out there that people could access? Yeah, yeah. Our, our website is EmmausWay.net. And um, we are usually usually up to date on our podcast and and uh and i would encourage people to uh to uh to listen to them i'll, I'll plug one of them not last sunday uh which was wonderful uh but the week before kate bowler who's a uh, a div school uh, a professor at, at UNC, I mean, excuse me, at, at Duke, and was a part of our community for several years. Uh, she is really kind of the one of the foremost researchers uh, on the uh, on the prosperity gospel in America. Her book, Blessed, uh, is brilliant. And um, she wrote um, 
um, she's struggling with some late stage cancer, which is uh, just horrible for us to watch and beautiful for us to watch in her. She's one of the most lovely people that I know. Um, but uh, uh, in fact, she wrote this great op-ed uh, in the New York Times about the irony of studying the prosperity gospel and being diagnosed with cancer as a young woman, in her late 30s. Um, but she she led our dialogue in a, this series that we're doing called What why I am, and hers was why I am a student of the prosperity gospel. That was amazing, amazing. I, I, I would love for everybody to hear that podcast. Kate is just gifted and brilliant. Um, but yeah, that's the best place to catch us. We tweet at, I, I tweet at, at Tim Condor, and we tweet at Adam Way, and uh, we've got the usual Facebook, that sort of stuff. Sure. Uh, and um, I'm excited to, you know, um, to, to be in conversation. I've got a new book coming out uh, this fall um, called Organizing the Body, uh, and again with Dan Rhodes, and it kind of, it chronicles kind of how uh, community organizing principles transforms the in internal life of churches and faith communities. So love people to be on the lookout for that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Tim. It's a, this is a great, I, I imagine this would be a great conversation and it certainly turned out to be. Yeah. It's good to meet you, and yeah. I'm, I'm, I looked at your stuff, and I'm delighted at what you're doing. These are, you. are you're, you're getting people's uh, practices in a transparent way for people. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and trying to get a good diversity of voices, which you bring to it too. So that's it's been. I love it. Thank you. Sure, absolutely. Thanks again for listening. As always, you can find the books and links and notes from this episode at sermonsmith.com. You can also find our archive of previous shows as well as all of the different books and resources in here that others have mentioned, see who's talked about it. So I hope you'll give that a look and any purchases made through that will also help to support the podcast. Thanks for listening.